Well, a very warm welcome. Hopefully, like me, you've just had your cup of coffee and you're now awake and alert. It's wonderful to come back for our third and final session in this series. So far, last night, we've heard about the history of what's been happening in our culture. We've heard about individualism, how what you feel is who you are. And we've heard about identity politics, where regardless of who you are, you are the group that you're part of and how we're seeing that clash between the oppressors and the oppressed. Those are a lot of buzzwords. We are recording each of the talks. So if you missed last night or you want to listen to that again, um, you're able to find those on our church website later on. Uh, same for both of these talks today and there's the sermons tomorrow. I found it really helpful so far to be able to put, put a name or, or put some descriptors around what I've been seeing in, in culture but maybe haven't been uh, able to see and zoom out from. Um, I was thinking maybe, you know, we're scapegoating people in our culture, but it's helpful to zoom even further out and think, yeah, it is about oppression um, and that narrative that's been shared, um, particularly as I've recently joined the government and all that goes on and gets said there. And it's been great this morning as we think, well, what now? What do I do? Um, so, pop quiz. We heard two questions this morning about... Uh, ways to deal with difficult conversations. I know you've all thoroughly memorised that. <laughs> so I want everyone all together to shout out what was the first question we ask? What do you mean by that? Fantastic. And what was the second question? How? A plus. I know I'm going to try and commit to memory those because that's a really helpful and loving way of talking to others about difficult questions and loving them as an individual. This session today, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the flip side, I guess. How do we advance the gospel in a way that's loving uh, in a culture as a minority? And I'm really excited to hear from what Arcos has to say today. Again, there'll be a question time. There'll be a number on the screen. Please feel free to text in a question. Even if you think, oh, this might be addressed later on, you might as well put it in there. Uh, and if it has been addressed, we just won't put it up, so it's fine. Um, there'll also be time to share again as well. So I'm going to invite John up now to pray and open for us, and then we'll get going. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Um, it has been very encouraging. Isn't it? I'm really liking Arcos a lot because he gave us all a challenge, and that is come to church. Do you hear that challenge? <laughs> come to church. That's how we live out. Um, what is plausible as Christians, as we're reminded by the Word of God, um, as we live out a better life as a demonstration of the gospel we believe. And so we do have the Word of God. So let's pray to God, trusting in Him, acknowledging that He speaks to us still and He works in us uh, by His Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You teach us, You continue to teach us through Your Word. And You show us in 1 Peter to honour Jesus as our Messiah and Lord in our hearts, and to always be ready to give a defence to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be equipped. Uh, equip us by your Spirit to speak words of grace, seasoned with salt, and always being ready to commend the gospel of grace. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to live lives worthy of the gospel for which we have been called. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Now, it's always good to hear stories, stories of how ordinary Christians live out their Christian faith in, in their lives, in their um, place of work, amongst their colleagues. So I'm going to ask uh, one of our members here, Yuvi, can I uh, get you to come up here? And this is the time now for us to, to see how Yuvi uh, lives out his uh, faith on his uh, sleeve. I'm always very encouraged when I chat with Yuvi and to see how he takes his faith seriously, not just on Sundays, but every day into his workplace. And so, uh, Yuvi, thank you for being willing to do this. Um, uh, a few questions. Uh, what do you currently do for work? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a cardiologist uh, working in both a teaching hospital and in my own private practice. Hmm. And how long have you been working as a doctor? Uh, too long, 30 years. <laughs> 30 years, yeah. 30 years, wow. And uh, as a Christian doctor, have you faced any difficulties to live out your faith as a doctor? And what yes. have they been? 
there had been there have been ongoing difficulties to live out my faith and uh, and these difficulties are um, temptations to go after the uh, wealth fame position uh, and glory um, and I also face the constant and possibly daily lure to just go with the crowd and not create any waves so as to keep the peace with everyone. Uh, in other words, I face a great temptation of just being a nice Christian guy rather than a gospel worker. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that and thank you for being honest with us um, about the real challenges as a Christian, being tempted by all the things of the world. How do you keep in mind as a doctor the, the great commission that Jesus uh, gives us all? Well, I keep in mind the great commission by reminding myself daily uh, who I am in Christ. And I go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, which says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this truth releases me into embracing the Great Commission with confidence and with a sense of joy that I've, uh, I have discovered in an increasing measure over the years. Mm. Great. And, and that's worth remembering, isn't it? Because we're always on mission, aren't we? So that's, I guess, what we'll hear about in this last session. Uh, what opportunities have you had to make your faith known and to share what it means to be a Christian amongst those you work with, your patients? I, I have opportunities uh, every day to share my faith uh, in small and large ways, mostly small ways. Um, I, I try to listen very carefully to what people are saying because uh, I think everyone is very good at talking but not very good at listening. And I think as Christians, uh, we are good listeners. Um, so as I listen to them, I discover um, areas where I can insert nuggets of the gospel in my conversation and so as to lead the conversation to Christ. Um, and of course, this doesn't happen every day. It's a process when, with my workmates, with my patients. Um, and so I build relationships which hopefully will eventually lead to the gospel. It has in, on some occasions. Uh, but I also carry with me tracks all the time, uh, like where is God in my suffering, or hope in hard times, or how to find joy. Uh, and I, when I find I face brick walls, uh, when people are not interested, I give them a tract. Uh, so at least uh, I leave something with them uh, so that I can uh, renew the effort on another occasion. Mm. Thanks, Julie. And I remember a while ago, this, um, uh, a story you shared of how you're helping the physical hearts of your patients, but also the spiritual heart. And there was a story of a guy who would come to see you. Just, you you want to share a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, you know, um, stories that really warms the cockles of my heart. Every time I uh, talk about it, uh, uh, this is a pretty big, burly, uh, white Aussie male, um, quite a strong personality, uh, having been a builder in his uh, previous life. Uh, lost his wife about eight years ago, and it was devastating, I think, after about 50 years of marriage. And he himself had a heart attack 10 years prior, and he actually has no reason to come and see me. Um, his heart is well, but he comes every three months to see me just to look at my face and he says, I have the hope now to go and live for another three months. <laughs> um, and so we have no conversation about his heart except uh, his life and how he is going. And um, um, so about five years ago, um, he came to me really, really depressed, uh, didn't want to go on another day. So. Um, so I helped him medically in terms of he dealing with the depression, but um, also turned him to the to, to the scriptures, and he was full of uh, acrimony against the Creator. So I told him, look, if you've got so much of issues to pick with the Creator, why don't you just read about who He is? So he said, okay, tell me about a book that I can read. So I said, why don't you go and read the Book of Job? 
And so, um, so he went and read the book of Job and came back two weeks later very angry. Uh, he said he only read four chapters and he said, what kind of God is this? Uh, so I said, well, you know, you have to go up to chapter 38 to discover who this God is. <laughs> and so, uh, so, um, and so, he, um, so he said, okay, give me an, a better book to read. So I said, okay, why don't you take the gospel, you know, and uh, go and read the gospel. So I asked him to read the gospel of John. And so he came back a month later with the gospel in his hand. And so we had some discussion about the gospel. And uh, eventually, about six months ago, he came to a point, this is about building relationship over more than nine years. Uh, I asked him that question, I believe you need to go to church and you need to confront your sins. Um, and, uh, and I can't do that professionally, um, so I had to direct him to a pastor who could deal with this. And so I wanted to make sure that I do everything by the book. Um, and so he did go to the church. I directed him to a pastor, and uh, he's now attending church. I believe he's not regenerated yet, but I believe he's close. Mm. Well, praise God for that, isn't it? Where, mm. where you're ministering not just to the physical heart, but the spiritual heart and and I, I remember hearing that story and being so encouraged on how you live out your faith in amongst your patients and bulk billing them when you can charge a thousand bucks a minute or something <laughs> uh, those are lawyers <laughs> oh they're the lawyers not the doctors okay um uh final question and that is uh, for many of the younger folks here they're they're at a stage in life where they're finishing off studies entering into the workforce what advice would you have for these young Christians uh, to keep in mind? Uh, I think several advice. Uh, if I can go back 30 years ago and how I started, I would do these things and I would do them well. You have to prepare well and prepare exhaustively, prepare daily to present the gospel. Be prepared apologetically. Uh, we've got great answers for our faith. And, uh, and there are good questions out there, and we can handle these questions with confidence and, and, and great joy. Uh, be ready to present a nugget of the gospel wisdom at any time. Um, pray unceasingly for opportunities, for it is God who holds the door of the hearts of the people we engage with. Mm -hmm. And remember, we may not get to present the gospel in its entirety to our workmates, uh, but God will give us small windows of opportunity to plant the seed of the gospel and the wisdom of Christ. Um, one of the things that I've learned is uh, to overcome the fear of rejection, ridicule, and marginalization by our workmates. Uh, I do that by seeking to please God in all things, uh, because seeking the pleasure of God releases us into the freedom to present the Christian worldview with joy, confidence, and humility. Mm. Thank you. That's wonderful advice. So we can work, work uh, go into the workforce with confidence because we do have the, the gospel answers. Thank you. Can I pray for you and for us? And, and we'll move on. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do equip us with your gospel. Thank you for how you've been using UV in his workplace amongst his colleagues and patients uh, to be a witness to the gospel, commending Christ. Um, ministering not just to the physical heart but the spiritual heart and we pray Lord for all of us here the rest of us that in our own workplaces that we might seek those opportunities to demonstrate what it means to live the good life that God has called us to that we might uh, continually con commend the gospel and we pray for more and more opportunities like that we pray these things in Jesus name amen thank you Thanks so much for that, John and Yuri. So encouraging, isn't it, to think in our workplaces it isn't just a no-go, that we do have those opportunities to overcome fear, rejection, marginalisation and be love and light to those around us. Maybe minus the dig at the lawyers. <laughs> but we're going to have a chat now in our discussion groups as we've been doing. Um, so we're going to have the questions up on the screen again. Um, my encouragement is... Feel free to break out from where the people you're sitting around. Find someone you don't know, maybe someone that uh, is in a different stage of life to you to get different perspectives. And you don't have to start with question one either. Maybe start with question three. Have those deep conversations. Let's start get thinking about these questions. Go about five or ten minutes on this. Um, it'd be great if you could all share about your lives and we get thinking about how this applies to us personally. 
that was all great discussions that you've had there. After the end, please feel free to mill around for a little while, have those conversations. Or maybe if you've been having a really great conversation, why not catch up for coffee, have a lunch or dinner upcoming and keep having those discussions? Because haven't we heard as well that we can need to be in community together, encouraging one another uh, as we go through as a minority in the church? We're now going to hear from Arcos again in our third and final talk. G'day everyone, hope you had a great af uh, afternoon morning tea. If you were here this morning, if you uh, just arrived, welcome. Great to have you here for this uh, third and final talk. Uh, now I should say before I begin the talk um, that this is one of those topics, especially this third talk about how to advance the gospel in this time, where there's so much I could have said, uh, so much that can be said, so much that is being said. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that I've cut, cut out 1,000 words from this talk in order to bring it down to the same length as the others. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say, sorry, what I want to say is that this won't be an exhaustive, every angle covered, uh, but I want to touch on what I think are the most important issues. Uh, other people will bring in different views, but hopefully this will give you a framework to think about how we can do some advancing of the gospel and living faithfully as Christians uh, in this uh, post-Christian age. Why don't we commit our time to God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's been a real treat to be able to think together as to how we can live as faithful Christians in a post-Christian age. But Father, we know that no matter how skilled we might be at speaking, no matter how much we meet together, no matter uh, how much uh, wisdom we have, uh, we are utterly, utterly dependent on you. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, a prayerful dependence uh, day by day, uh, knowing that you are the one who holds all things in your hands, uh, knowing that you are the one who changes hearts, that you are the one who raises up nations and brings them down. Uh, help us to remember this as we think through our own responsibilities this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the topic of my talks this weekend is playing as the away team in front of a hostile crowd. Now, I'm no AFL fan. Heck, I might even admit to the fact that I don't even know the rules. But playing as the away team in front of the hostile crowd, perhaps would that be like the Sydney Swans playing Collingwood at the Melbourne MCG? Might that sort of uh, be in that ballpark? Uh, would that be ugly if you're a Swan player walking onto that field? I mean, how would you feel in front of all those Collingwood fans as you're walking on as a Sydney Swan player? No offence to Collingwood supporters. Now, from what I'm led to believe, it would be quite daunting. You know that as a Swans player, you'd be hated. Actually, may, might even be booed. Uh, it'd be a tough game. And as we've seen thus far, it's a little bit like us Christians in our current culture. We're the ones that are being booed. We're the ones that are being hated. Uh, most people don't even want us on the field, let alone in the game. So what do we do? How do we, on the one hand, advance the gospel, keep the gospel going out, and live faithfully to Jesus uh, in the way we act in front of such a tough crowd? Advance the gospel and live faithfully to Jesus as we act in front of a tough crowd. In an age where we're now the minority, and increasingly, as we've seen, we're the despised, immoral minority. So in this talk, we'll explore that. And I want to do three things in this talk. Uh, firstly, I want to start thinking about our attitude toward others that attack us. Uh, our attitude we need towards those that attack us. We'll then think about how to speak in our post-Christian age. And then we'll think about how to act in our post-Christian age. So firstly, attitude, then our speech, then our action. Does that make sense? All right, let's get into it. Well, I think there's little controversy in me saying that we live in a culture of outrage. Outrage is increasingly the default setting of our culture. It's becoming our culture's normal response when we disagree with someone. Uh, get the paper on a Saturday, go to the age online, look at the comments, and what do you find? Uh, so many letters to the editor, so many comments on the internet, have this tone of thrilled vindication, as someone has put it. There are people that have been on the lookout for something to be offended by, 
and they've found it. And what are they doing? They're venting their spleen. They are outrage. Uh, I, I heard the term outrage porn. The idea that being outraged at something we're looking for, we just love it and we're addicted to it. That's the culture that we're living in. But outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. And we Christians aren't immune to it either, are we? I mean, the media writes articles questioning religious freedom. And what do people do? You see it in the comment sections. Christians get in there and they're outraged in the online comments. People make fun of Christianity online and there's outrage. Outrage seems normal these days. But, as Christians, we're called to relate to our opponents in a radically different way. Not with outrage, but with grace. Uh, earlier this year, I went to the United States and I ate at this fast food chain called Chick-fil-A. Has anyone heard of it? Chick-fil-A, yeah, it's like KFC, but probably not as bad for you. Um, is there Chick-fil-A here in Melbourne at all? No, it's still in America. Now, in 2012, the president of the Chick-fil-A restaurant chain, a Christian man by the name of Dan Cathy, he made comments on a radio program supporting traditional marriage. So this was still at a time when Barack Obama was still, I think he was at the time still publicly for traditional marriage. Now, Dan Cathy just calmly laid out the biblical view of marriage. Now, this kicked off a firestorm of protests against Chick-fil-A restaurants. Uh, gay rights groups organised kiss-ins outside Chick-fil-A uh, restaurants. There were boycotts from many consumers. And the mayor of Chicago actually came out and said, Chick-fil-A is no longer welcome in our city. Now, what did Dan Cathy do in response? Did he get on Twitter and Facebook and have a red-hot go at his opponents? Not at all. Instead he quietly reached out to one of his strongest critics, a gay activist by the name of Shane Winmeyer. Now, Shane Winmeyer had organised gay rights, a gay rights organisation called Campus Pride to protest against Chick-fil-A. And writing a bit later in the Huffington Post, this is what Winmeyer had to say about Dan Cathy and uh, Dan Cathy reaching out to him. Quote, it is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk, risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities and in our own families. Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for campus pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and he sought first to understand, not to be understood. Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanour has always been one of kindness and openness. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Instead of outrage, Dan Cathy showed grace. Instead of hate, he reached out his hand in love. He didn't compromise what he believed to be true, but his attitude, his posture, was one of generosity, of grace. That's a Christ-like posture. Dan Cathy understood Jesus when Jesus said in Matthew 5 to love our enemies. Dan Cathy understood passages like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where we're commanded not to repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. Repaying evil with blessing, outrage with mercy, insult with kindness, that's a posture of grace. That's what you and I are called to, especially in this climate of outrage. So what might this look like in practice? How do we have or how do we get this attitude of this posture of grace towards others? How do we cultivate it? Well, firstly, I think it's extremely important to remember that Jesus came to die for those who hate us. Jesus came to die for those who hate us. 
Uh, Jesus died for his enemies. You remember what happened when Jesus' hands were being nailed to the cross? Uh, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. As Titus chapter 2, verse 4 points out, God desires that all people be saved, whether they're gay rights activists that want to shut your church down or whoever they might be. So when we engage people, especially in discussion, remember that Jesus Christ died for them. Be focused on winning the person before winning any argument. Show grace rather than winning at all costs. So remember that Jesus came to die for those that hate us. And secondly, we need to take the initiative to build bridges, to build bridges with those who hate us. I mean, look at Dan Cathy. Look at his example. His example of reaching out, building that bridge with gay activist Shane Winmeyer. I mean, suspicion around Christians and around our beliefs, uh, it's only likely to get worse. Uh, Witness the recent public firestorm that I've mentioned a few times around religious freedom in public schools. And what's your secular neighbour? What's your secular neighbour going to think about you? What's your secular neighbour going to do? Well, if they think that you're morally inferior, it's unlikely they're going to take the first step. It's unlikely they're going to want to build a bridge. It's easier for them to keep their distance. So we're the ones, as Christians, who need to initiate the relationship, to build that bridge with others. Now, it can be as simple as just saying hello when you see them, just acknowledging them and going from there. Uh, Somebody said that Christians are only going to get rid of the stereotype that we're hateful bigots by building relationships with people that are different from us, that actually hate us. So we need to build those bridges, start building those bridges, even with those who hate us. So have a posture of grace, have an attitude of grace, as God has showed grace and mercy to us. Uh, Pastor Scott Sauls, uh, American pastor, said this, When the grace of Jesus sinks in, we'll be among the least offended and most loving people in the world. A posture of grace. So how should a posture or an attitude of grace affect how we use our words? Well, obviously a gracious attitude should lead to a gracious tongue. Grace should be dripping from our mouths, if I can use that expression. Even when, or especially when, we're disagreeing with someone. But if you're anything like me, it's not easy, especially in the online world. Uh, In the online world, that's where a lot of these discussions take place. But what happens when you go online? Well, I think what tends to happen is that the filters come off. We just say what we really think. We don't really care what the other person feels because, hey, we're behind the keyboard, they're behind the keyboard, and so we just say what we want. And so I think too many Christians today believe that they're fighting for righteousness in their online interactions or their heated discussions with co-workers when in reality they're engaging the world the same way non-Christians do except perhaps without the swearing. So how's your speech with non-Christian friends and family? How's your speech with people online? As I look back at my own speech online, uh, look at how other people, even Christians, uh, sometimes speak, it's often uh, downright awful, downright worldly. Uh, It's trying to achieve God's mission the world's way, rather than God's way. I mean, yes, it's good and important to discuss issues. I think there's a very important place for that. But it doesn't bring glory to God if we attack His image bearers. So then, how do we show grace in our speech? How do we speak graciously? Look, here are some practical things that I've found helpful over the years, and I think I commend them to you as well. Firstly, seek first to understand before being understood. Now, hopefully those questions I gave you before in the last lesson will help you with that. But if you're anything like me, you love a good discussion, especially something you've got strong feelings about. But what happens when the other person disagrees with you? You're feeling passionate, you're on a roll, but the other person shuts you down, they disagree with you. What happens to the conversation? Well, I think the emotional temperature just rises, doesn't it? The emotional temperature can get to boiling point very quickly if we're not careful. 
So one way to help the emotional temperature get lower, especially on social media, is seek first to understand those who disagree with you. Uh, as it says in the book of James, if you, uh, book of James, James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, these are words we really need to take to heart. I'm thinking I'll put these words up next to my computer when I'm going online onto Facebook. Uh, here they are. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How about putting those words next to your computer next time you're tempted to go online and uh, have a go? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, listen to the other side. Ask questions. You see, we want to get to the point in our conversation where we can state the other person's point of view in our own words better than they can state it in theirs. When the conversation gets to the point where you say, so what you're saying is, da, 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 is that right? And the other person comes back to you and says, yes, that's exactly it. Then and only then have you understood them. Seek first to understand. And what happens? It lowers the emotional temperature of the conversation. Uh, feeling understood helps to disarm the other person, helps to disarm difficult conversation. And then and only then, when the other person feels understood, when the other person has said, yes, you get it, only then share your point of view. Now, obviously, this takes time. This takes patience. Social media isn't always set up for these sorts of longer conversations. And it takes, of course, grace. But that's what we're called to do. Seek first to understand. Be quick to hear. And then, and only then, to be understood. Secondly, you're trying to win the person first before you win the argument. Uh, this comes back to the posture of grace I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, now, many non-Christians will just expect you to be judgmental and vicious. After all, you're morally inferior, remember, because of your beliefs. But by being gracious and gentle, chances are this will have a bigger impact on them than if you win the argument. I mean, how many people actually are in a heated, debated argument and they walk away and they think, yeah, I'm going to change my mind as a result of that heated argument? What tends to happen is people walk away and just think about what they could have said, what they should have said, what they're going to say next time. But if you're trying to win the person first by being gracious, by being gentle, by listening well, seeking first to understand, you'll have a bigger impact on them than if you battle them down to win the argument. Thirdly, and especially in the online world, whoever has the last word loses. Whoever has the last word loses. Uh, so often in discussions, whether on or offline, we're so invested in winning that we just want the last word, uh, especially online. I mean, you see those conversations and the comment threads just go on forever. You're scrolling down and you're thinking, when on earth is this conversation going to finish? And often it gets more heated the further down you go. Now look, there, there comes a point, I think, where you both have your say, you've understood their point of view, and hopefully they've understood your point of view, and there's not much point of continuing, especially if it's online. Be sure to let the other person have the final say. Give them the last comment, the last word. You don't need that witty or snarky comeback. Don't give them that sarcastic takedown. Just let it go, walk away, pray for them. Let them have the last word. Whoever has the last word loses. <clears throat> Number four, remember that other people, including non-Christians, are watching over your shoulder. Again, especially if you're online, uh, especially if you're discussing contentious issues, then chances are other people, perhaps lots of other people, are watching your interaction. I mean, I had this experience recently where someone was having a go at me online, and I thought unfairly, but instead of attacking them back, I thought, oh, okay, I'll just shut up, I'll try and put into practice what I've been teaching you here. Um, and so I kept my engagement to a minimum. And interestingly enough, a, a stranger messaged me via Facebook Messenger later on and thanked me for showing grace. I thought, oh, okay. Our actions speak louder than our words. 
I mean, what will onlookers say about your online interactions? Are you known as a gracious person who doesn't repay evil with evil but with a blessing? Or do people look at your online interactions like they're looking at a car accident? It's terrible, but they can't look away. Okay, so we've seen the posture we need to adopt. That's one of grace. We've seen the grace-filled speech we need to have toward those who oppose us. Now let's think about how we should act. What should Christians do in this post-Christian age? Now again, there's a lot that could be said here, but the two things I want to focus on, the two things that we need to do in a post-Christian age is evangelize and love our neighbor in practical ways. If we share the gospel as per the Lord's great commission to make disciples, and if we do good to our neighbors as we have opportunity, we'll be acting faithfully, evangelizing and doing good. The two key things we need to do in this post-Christian age. So let's unpack these. Now, evangelism is fundamental in a post-Christian age. It's fundamental in every age, ever since the uh, Lord Jesus gave us the Great Commission. But let's think about it in a post-Christian age. Now, a helpful book on this is one by a guy called Sam Chan. I've mentioned his name before. Uh, It's called Evangelism in a Skeptical Age. I think it's down at the bottom of your sheet. I've put a note down there as a helpful book. If you want to chase it up, I highly recommend it. If you're thinking about evangelism in a post-Christian age. But uh, Sam, one important observation he makes is that people in a post-Christian Australia don't have much of a Christian background and even less of a Christian worldview. And so as Christianity leaves the Western building, we can't bank on people knowing about the Christian God. We can't bank on them having a bit of knowledge beforehand that we can tap into. We really have to start from scratch. We really have to start at the ground up as we're sharing the gospel. Uh, Secondly, if Christianity is increasingly suspect, uh, then all things being equal, it'll take more time to persuade people of the gospel. Uh, There'll be greater cultural resistance. People will have beliefs that will really uh, be against the gospel. There'll be less shared assumptions, which means that we need to show that Christianity is good before they'll see it as true. Humanly speaking, we now are in a place where we need to show that Christianity is good before they'll accept it as true. If Christianity is the new bogeyman, then your exclusive humanist, your non-Christian, will want to know that it's good for them and not harmful before they'll take notice and wonder if it's true. Now, how do you do that? Um, Well, when I was still on campus with AFES, uh, with a Christian group on campus, we met a student called Sharon. Now, Sharon was from a non-Christian background, very little understanding of Christianity. And she started coming along to our group. And I remember one time as I was talking to her, she said uh, quite openly, she said, look, I think your beliefs are weird. But the way you treat one another, especially that guy in your group that's really socially awkward, that's so different to the way the rest of the uni students act. That's so good. Thanks be to God, she eventually became a Christian. But she first saw that Christianity was good before she became interested in seeing whether it's true. So evangelism. As as I mentioned, Sam Chan's book, Evangelism and Skeptical Age, highly recommended. And now we come to social action. How do we act to positively advance the gospel and do good in a post-Christian age. Uh, In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, And as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those of the household of faith. Let us do good to all people. There's a command there that as Christians, we shouldn't stay in our echo chambers or our ghettos, but get out there and as we have opportunity, do good to all people. Now, this command echoes Jesus' summary of the law, love your neighbour as yourself. So put simply, in post-Christian Australia, we're actually to love our neighbours and do good to them as we have opportunity. Now, other people point to passages like Jeremiah chapter chapter 29, verse 7, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, uh, where the prophet Jeremiah instructs the exiled Jews to, uh, quote, "...seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile." And pray to the Lord on its behalf, 
For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where you're in exile. Now that was given to the Jews in Jeremiah's day. But I think there's helpful parallels here for us as well. We're to do good to the city that we're a part of. Even as we're exiled or away from our heavenly home. We're actually to get out there. To love our neighbour and do good. So what might this look like in practice? Well, we've seen that we need an attitude, a posture of grace towards others. We've seen that we should speak graciously, return insult for blessing. Sorry, return blessing for insult. Very important to get that order right. But in terms of doing good, in terms of doing practical action, what might it look like? Well, again, uh, I think it's helpful to think about doing good in three levels, on three levels. As individuals, as churches, and in the public square. So as individuals, as churches, and in the public square. So what are some of the ways that we can do good to others, to Christian or non-Christian, as individuals? Well, I think the limit's our own creativity. Uh, The Bible says there's all sorts of things we can do. We can show hospitality to our Christian or non-Christian neighbours. We can help a sick neighbour. We can build a relationship with a lonely colleague. Uh, There's all sorts of things we can do, and I won't labour the point, because I think as Christians, uh, we're quite good at thinking about how we can serve others. But I think that's a key thing we need to do. What about as churches? What sort of things can we do uh, that are good, that serve those around us? Uh, I think, was that a discussion question earlier on? What are some ideas that people came up with? What are some good things that we can do as churches to love our neighbours, to do good to those around us? That's right, run a playgroup for Christian mothers, invite non-Christians into, invite non-Christians into. So, yeah, at that point, we're mixing evangelism and doing good to others. Bonus, yep. Yes. Excellent, the ESL classes, fantastic. Yep, so English as a second language, teaching migrants English, doing good to them, uh, fantastic good, Yep. So there's all sorts of things. It's great that you've had a a think about it, a discussion about it. But as churches, uh, I think now is the time where we really need to think hard about doing good to those around us. Because if we want to advance the gospel, we need to show that Christianity is good before people will see Christianity as true. So now's the time to get really creative as churches. And interestingly enough, uh, I think the Bible... uh, make some very interesting points about this. Um, Passages such as 1 Peter 2, chapter 12, and Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 16. 1 Peter 2, 12, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. These passages actually link out good deeds with bringing people to faith. So Matthew 5 talks about uh, Jesus telling his disciples as a collective, as in you guys, do your good works before others so they may see your good deeds and give glory to God in heaven. Doing good breaks down resistance to the gospel. Doing good as individuals and as churches helps people uh, come to know the Lord Jesus. Now, in the final minutes on this talk, I want to focus on the more difficult area, indeed a more controversial area, namely how Christians are to act in the public square, which includes but is not limited to how we act politically. Now, If you look at the books that have been written about this, the blog posts and so forth, there's a wide range of responses here, from withdrawing from any political involvement uh, all the way across to trying and imposing a theocracy where the church actually runs society. Now, I think both are misguided as far as Scripture goes. So what should Christians do? Well, let me start by putting a few pieces down and then we'll see where we land in terms of our public square engagement. Uh, First piece, what should be the Christian's attitude towards our government? What should be Christian's attitude towards government? Now, John tells me you've looked at Romans chapter 13. So if you remember back to those talks, what are some attitudes we have, should have towards our government? Uh, 
Submission, yep, submitting to our government. And why should we submit? What's the logic of Romans 13? Yes? Their authority is God-given. I know it might not feel like this at times, but government is actually a God-given good. Now, if you don't believe me, just go to countries in the world where there is no functioning government. Uh, You think of places like Afghanistan, uh, Somalia and so forth. Government is actually a God-given good. And as much as we're talking about the difficulties we face here in Australia, I was talking to our dear brother Chang from South Sudan last night. Just talk to him about what it's like living in a war zone where there is no functioning government. Uh, It puts it in perspective. Government is a God-given good. So why should Christians withdraw from involvement with government? Shouldn't we rather be involved in some way with our government if God's the one that's placed it there? That's the first piece. Uh, The second piece is, if you vote, you're already part of the political process. If you vote, you're already part of the political process. You You get to have a say on who should be in government. You get to have a say on law and on policies. Not just during elections, but you can meet with your local member. That's what they're there for, so that you can influence them. And can I say, the Bible says that we're not here at this particular time and place by accident. God's put us here at this particular time and place, which means he's put you under this particular government, under this particular political system. It's actually God-given. So I think as Christians, it stands to reason that we should engage with that. But I'll say more on that tomorrow in our religious freedom talk. Uh, And the third piece that we need to think about is to remember that the biblical view of humanity, of justice, of sexuality, is good for everyone, not just for Christians. The biblical view of these issues is good for everyone. Um, so we often hear the truth that you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person. Uh, you know, uh, Atheists often say that, and there's truth to that view. But who do you hear this from? You hear this from westernized Atheists, people who live in a country where the laws, where the morality has been so heavily influenced by Christianity that, you know, for for large parts, what is good from a Christian perspective is still seen as what is good from a Western perspective. Uh, Atheist commentator Chris Berg, this is what he points out, he said, Yet virtually all the secular ideas that non-believers value have Christian origins. Remember, this is an atheist speaking. It was theologians and religiously-minded philosophers who developed the concept of individual and human rights. Same with progress, reason, and equality before the law. It is fantasy fantasy to suggest these values emerged out of thin air once people started questioning God. The Christian understanding of human dignity, sexuality, freedom, family, marriage, you name it, it's not just good for Christians. It's good for everyone. Why? Why? Because that's God's design for humanity, for all human beings. Marriage isn't something that's just for Christians. Marriage is for non-Christians. Freedom, religious freedom isn't just for Christians. It's for non-Christians. These views, God's view of sexuality is better than the queer view. God's view of government is better than the Marxist view. God's view of economy is better than the fascist view. And Western society has flourished whenever we have taken on board large segments of the Christian worldview. That's why people like my parents risked their necks to bring my family out to Australia. The Western world was a beacon to those of us in Marxist regimes, in large part because Christianity had the Christian worldview as the basis. So if governments are here for our good, if you and I have political responsibility as voters... If the Christian worldview is the basis for the best laws and public policy, and many non-Christian views are disastrous for both Christians and non-Christians, then wouldn't it make sense to use our God-given political responsibility to influence government? Wouldn't it make sense to advocate for Christian views of justice? Wouldn't it make sense to do this for the sake of our neighbour, both Christian and non-Christian? Wouldn't it make sense to try and influence laws and public policy so that these are more aligned with the Bible's view of justice, with the Bible's view of humanity, with the Bible's view of sexuality? And doing all of this graciously, undertaking what I'm calling gracious advocacy in the public square, graciously standing up for the rights of others, advocating for just policies 
based on Christian views of justice. As I mentioned, I'm a refugee from communism. I was four years old when I came out, and I grew up amongst Hungarian, the Hungarian community. And so we grew up listening to the stories of other people that had been persecuted under communism. Now, what struck me was that very few, there were very few Christians amongst them. Most people that fled communism weren't Christians. Most people that were persecuted by communism weren't Christians. Most people that were persecuted by communism were the non-Christians. Non-Christians are hurt when non-Christian ideologies drive our laws, drive our public policies, drive our government. So out of love for our neighbour, doing good as we have opportunity, shouldn't we influence law and public policy for the good of our non-Christian neighbour? Now at this point you might be thinking, whoa, look, Christians shouldn't force their views on others, especially politically. Now I agree, to a point, we must never ever force the gospel on others. The gospel isn't ever to be imposed by government force. The gospel is always to be by persuasion, so that people are free to accept or reject the gospel. But if you vote, then you're already forcing your views on others by voting for a local member who will then be involved in passing laws and public policy that impacts others. <clears throat> and so, if you look back over history, it turns out that Christians have a long history of advocating justice for others. Uh, from a gentleman by the name of William Wilberforce and his mates in the UK advocating against the slave trade and against slavery in the early 1800s. Uh, to the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks and those others who were advocating against segregation in the US from explicitly Christian perspectives. To the pro-life movement advocating for the unborn, uh, these people had a posture of advocating for justice for the sake of others. Because God's view of justice is best for everyone. It's best for the atheist as well as the Christian. So gracious advocacy in the public square. I think that's what we need in our post-Christian age. All right, I've spoken a lot in the last few days. I've downloaded a lot of information on you all. My prayer is that it will be a blessing to your church and to your communities, uh, both Christian and non-Christian. But I will have failed you if you leave this room today unchanged. So let me ask you some questions just to provoke some reflection. What will you do differently as you play as an away team before a hostile crowd? Will you make sure that your church is a priority and that you do all you can to strengthen this community of saints? In conversation, will you seek first to understand before being understood? Will you be gracious as you advance the gospel? Will you play not to win the argument, but to win the person? Will you spend some time thinking about how you could be a gracious advocate for others in the public square? Brothers and sisters, it's my dearest prayer that you will. Let's pray now together. Heavenly Father, as we thought uh, long and deep about these issues, uh, we thank you that we have your word to guide us. We pray that we would keep thinking hard as individuals, as churches, about how we can do good to those around us and how we could advance the gospel in this post-Christian age. And under your gracious hand, may you bless these efforts of ours so that many more people would be brought into your kingdom so that our society might become more just for the sake of our neighbours, especially the most vulnerable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for sharing with us on those. I know there's a lot of things we're thinking about now. And part of that is because we've had so many questions. Thank you so much for sending them in. We're only going to be able to have a look at a small sample. So we're going to have seven questions on the screen. Um, but certainly if we don't get to your question or it doesn't come up 
have those conversations afterwards. Uh, maybe have a chat with Arcos or someone else here about them. Let's have a look at the first question. I often distance myself from the Australian Christian lobby due to their controversial and seemingly unkind reputation. Is that the best approach? Yeah, look, I understand the sentiment and I know a lot of people that would feel the same way. Um, yeah, it's a difficult one. I think we each need to uh, come to our own decision as to what we find comfortable in terms of gracious advocacy. Uh, I, I think some of the criticism against the Australian Christian lobby is, is, is warranted. Um, and yet at the same time, uh, I think we need to remember that often it's the media that also twists and paints uh, the perception of the way the Australian Christian lobby uh, advocates. Um, so they do a lot of other advocacy uh, that the media doesn't pick up on. Um, I think they do a lot of good work around abortion, about prostitution and those sorts of things. Um, so maybe I think uh, if it is something that you're thinking about, maybe feel free to have a chat to them. Have a chat to the... Um, I think there's each, rep, each state has a rep. Have a chat with them and maybe talk through uh, what their philosophy is about advocacy in the public square. Because um, maybe a lot of it, I, th I dare say, is uh, down to the media perception. But uh, yeah, I think we each need to make up our own mind as to what we feel reasonable and comfortable with. Yep. That's helpful. Thanks. We have a second question. What should you do if your conversation is time poor and you don't have time to fully understand the depth of the other person's point of view? I think even just the act of listening communicates something very powerful to them. So if it is time poor, um, if you are time poor, like I wouldn't progress a conversation unless you understand what the other person's saying. I mean, do you want to have a conversation with someone based on a misunderstanding of what they're saying? I don't think that's a good way ahead. I think the best way ahead is if you don't have time at that particular, if you, don't, um, if you can't understand them fully at that particular point in time, then make another uh, appointment to see them or talk to them later. But I think, uh, yeah, we do ourselves a disservice if we don't fully understand the other person before we uh, engage them. Thanks for that. My friend at work says, hi, mate. Here's a yes vote sticker. Mm. You're welcome. They assume my worldview is the same as theirs. In that moment, is it worth opposing them and voicing my concern? When is it a good time to voice my opinion? Yeah, look, that's a wisdom call. Um, I mean, if you're in a situation uh, where you're in public and someone's given that to you, um, uh, I, I guess it depends. Like, I think those conversations are best had uh, afterwards in private, especially uh, if you're in a work situation and everybody around you is a yes voter. Um, yeah, the, the danger is that you might get people piling on and it might turn very ugly very quickly. Um, I think when it comes to contentious issues, it's best done privately. Um, like at, at that point in time, if it came to me, here's a, here's a yes, vote yes sticker, you're welcome, I probably would just wouldn't say anything. Um, if I was working, I'd probably just keep working and ignoring them. Um, I, I wouldn't affirm the goodness of what they've done to me, um, but yet I probably would leave the conversation for another time, um, a more appropriate time. Are resources like Two Ways to Live not practical for younger people today? How can we use a postmodern and narrative-driven approach in sharing the gospel? Yeah, sure. Two Ways to Live is a, is, is a great tract. Um, it was produced in the 80s, early 90s uh, for use on university campuses like where I was. Um, and the thing you've got to remember that all tracts, um, all resources like that, uh, in, uh, what's known as enculturated. They come out of a particular culture, they speak to a particular culture in a particular way, and sometimes when culture moves on, when the questions that culture's asking, uh, they, those older tracks might not be as helpful or as relevant as the newer ones. So um, how can we use a postmodern, individualistic, narrative-driven approach in sharing the gospel? Uh, again, I'll point you to Sam Chan's book, Evangelism in a Skeptical Age. He really tackles that question well. Um, I, I think a large part of it uh, it comes down to understanding the other person and their questions. That's the first thing we need to do. And then sharing the gospel based on what their questions are. Uh, but again, I don't have time to answer it in detail now. I'll point you to Sam Chan's book, Evangelism in a Skeptical Age. Mm. Very, very good for that. I know Sam Chan did some talks recently at City Bible Forum in Melbourne. So there's a talks there as well. Yeah, really absolutely. helpful. You can look him up. You'll, you'll find some talks. He's done a lot of talks around his book. So, yeah. Comedian as well. Interesting guy. 
Actually, the Gospel Coalition, I interviewed him for the Gospel Coalition uh, Australia webinar. So if you Google Sam Chan plus Gospel Coalition Australia webinar, I interview him about his book. So I think that question came up or something similar. You'll be able to hear him there. What does it mean for Christians to lose well? Do you think this is a good concept we should learn to practice? Yep. Losing well, that's a concept that John Dixon, an Australian author, has coined. Um, look, I... I've had a conversation with John about this. I think it has a place of losing well. Um, I think what, um, what I understand John to be saying is that we return insult with blessing. So if what losing well means is that if someone attacks you, you bless them, you're gracious with them, then I think that is losing well, and that's a good thing that we should practice. Um, my concern with that, and my understanding is that John wouldn't see it this way, but my concern with that is that does it mean that if Christians are no longer welcome in the public sphere, well, we'll just withdraw and be silent? You know, we've lost well, we've tried to put our voice forward, nobody's interested, so we'll just withdraw. Um, if that's what losing well means, I think that's sub-biblical. As I argued a moment ago, I think we're called to do good to all people, uh, and doing good to all people might be like doing what Martin Luther King and the civil rights activists did, getting into the public square, advocating for justice, even if you're not welcome. Obviously, you do that graciously and kindly, um, but I think Christians, out of love for neighbour, should get into the public square even when we're not welcome. But if losing well is just blessing those that uh, insult us, then yeah, let's lose well. How have you seen churches engage well in social action without compromising the core business of gospel ministry? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I think churches, uh, one thing I think that churches uh, should do, the core business of, their core business is gospel ministry and we proclaim, well in a sense we proclaim a political gospel. The gospel is political because we're calling on everyone in society to bow their knee to a heavenly king. King Jesus is the king and the ruler of government. So in a sense the gospel is a political gospel and we are citizens of heaven. So we're citizens of heaven while being citizens on earth. Could you imagine the High Court having a field day with Christian MPs, if that was the case? Um, I think churches do well to prepare their members uh, to go out into society uh, to share the gospel and love one another. So I'd be hesitant to see churches uh, engaging as a church in the public square, but I think churches can do a lot in preparing their members to engage well in the public square. Um, having said that, I think you've shared ideas before in terms of social action, in terms of serving our neighbours around us. I think that's a thing that churches can do. You know, ESL classes, uh, uh, you know, playgroups, that sort of thing. I think churches can do that really well uh, without compromising the core business of the gospel. Should we be working with other religions who also have unpopular opinions? Like, for example, Muslims who are also pro-life. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think there are issues upon which uh, we can work with others who think differently, very differently to us. So we mentioned the Australian Christian Lobby before. They were working with some very secular feminists around the issue of prostitution laws. So Australian Christian Lobby and very secular feminists working together. You would expect that to happen. But I think there's places for working together with those who think differently uh, to better address particular issues. Um, to better bring justice to society. So, yeah, as long as it doesn't compromise our witness, I think there's a real place for that, for sure. Fantastic. That's the end of the formal questions we have on the slide. Certainly have those conversations, keep discussing that. Thank you, Arcos, for your additional time and thoughts in that. I'm going to invite John up now for some closing remarks. Uh, thank you so much. I do hope that was extremely stimulating for you as it was for me yesterday and today the things we've heard and learnt reminding us of who we are uh, reminding us of our place in this world and the good impact for for good we can have upon our society as each and every one of us as individuals go out to do good to proclaim christ to commend the gospel uh, but um, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for uh, spending time with us. But we do want to thank Arcos and Sarah for coming down here uh, to share his wisdom and to be of um, such uh, help to us as a church. So let's put our hands together for Arcos.
Um, but Arcos is not done. He's still with us tomorrow. He'll be preaching at both services tomorrow on Romans 13. And we want to thank Lauren as well. Uh, thank you for coordinating this uh, weekend for all your work and all those of you who are involved. Uh, but thank you, Lauren. So let's put our hands together for Lauren. But of course, this is not just information for us. It's for our minds uh, to hopefully move our hearts so that our hands will be active as Christians in this world but not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. God is our Father. Christ is our Saviour. We are distinct. We are always swimming against the flow of society, and, and we can do so, living a better a better life because we have the Word of God that reminds us, that which compels us and keeps us firm in the gospel. Uh, but let's now uh, close in prayer um, and, and lunch. Find your own lunch. <laughs> but uh, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us put the things we've learnt in practice, that we might not be just those who know your word, but be doers of the word. Uh, help us in our engagement with our friends, our family, with society, with our colleagues, with a posture of grace. With words of grace, help us to live faithfully according to your will and your ways. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us all to live such good lives, lives of love, lives that are sacrificial, lives that seek the interests of this world, and that when the world looks upon us, they might see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of this world. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Fine, your own lunch. <laughs>